Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. Now this week we have a lot of stuff to cover. First we have the Nouveau maintainer resigning from Red Hat and stopping their work on Nouveau. We have the LTS Linux kernels moving from a 6 year support window to 2 years only. We have the release of GNOME 45, we have the Ubuntu 23.10 beta, we have Fedora workstation GNOME, Proposing to ditch X11 entirely for version 40, we have some updates on why we need Wayland and where it's at, and we've got a new pretty hard to detect Linux backdoor plus a lot more stuff. So as always, all the links that I used to make this episode are in the show notes, and all the links to support this episode and the show in general are also in the show notes. So let's get started. So first, we have some potential bad news for NVIDIA users who are hoping for a nice, fully open-source NVIDIA stack on Linux. The primary maintainer for the Nouveau project has now resigned. And if you don't know, Nouveau is basically the kernel driver for NVIDIA GPUs, the open-source kernel driver for NVIDIA GPUs. It's the part that lets Linux interact with your NVIDIA GPU. It works fairly well for older cards like the the GTX series, but it does provide really bad performance uh, for RTX cards because at that point Nvidia introduced some kind of firmware lock that prevents the GPU from using all their available clock speed. So basically you're using your GPU at the clock speed it used to boot the computer, which is really, really low and well below what the GPU is capable of. So basically Nouveau is a very capable GPU uh, driver for older Nvidia cards, but really not usable for RTX cards unless you just want to display something on screen. But it is also a crucial part for all the other open source Nvidia efforts like NVK or the recent OpenGL open source Nvidia drivers, because these implement support for graphics APIs, but they still depend on Nouveau and a kernel driver to interact with the hardware. And so losing the main maintainer for the Nouveau driver is a pretty big blow. Uh, Now he's called Ben Skeggs and he's worked for Red Hat for a while now and he has contributed to Nouveau for more than 10 years. And he has posted his last patch this week to indicate that he was both resigning from Red Hat and from Nouveau development. It doesn't look like there's any drama or weird problems, he just wants to move on to other things. Now, he's leaving things in a good state because he has just recently merged the necessary patches for supporting the GSP firmware, which is this firmware lock that I talked about. So it should make supporting newer NVIDIA hardware easier than it was when he started working on the driver, but it should also mean that reclocking the NVIDIA GPUs is now possible on the RTX series which means that all the other work that we're seeing, like the NVK driver, will be able to take advantage of this. It's not the only roadblock for getting comparable performance on open source NVIDIA drivers to what the proprietary NVIDIA drivers provide, but it's still a big, big step to ensure that these cards might be usable in the future with an open source driver. So Ben did merge all this work before stepping down from his maintainer work 
Uh, and all of this stuff will probably be merged and, well, upstreamed at least in the Linux kernel 6.7. Not the, the next version is 6.6, .6, so it might happen, but, but the window for all of this has is already closed, so you can't really add new stuff to 6.6. .6. So it's going to be for 6.7 if everything works well. Uh, it looks like it's not going to be turned on by default. It's going to be experimental and, and enabled with a kernel option. But still, the core of the work is here. Now, we just have to hope that someone steps up and picks this development back up again uh, so the Nouveau driver isn't left in limbo because without it, all the other efforts uh, for bringing Vulkan support and having a complete open source stack for NVIDIA, they're basically all dead in the water. We can't really blame Ben for wanting to do something else. I mean, it must not have been very nice work. Well, probably fun if you're interested in that kind of stuff, but it's reverse engineering work. NVIDIA is trying to block you at every turn. And a lot of people just do not use this driver because let's be honest, it's not usable for RTX cards. You're, you're buying a super expensive GPU and you're getting really bad performance out of it. So obviously you're going to use the proprietary driver. So it must have been thankless work, uh, but I still want to thank Ben for all the work he did and for enabling, well, the next generation of open GPU driver developers to actually get some stuff done. So it's, it's really nice that he stayed for that long. It's really nice that he waited until he had GSP support merged. And now let's hope that someone else can pick up where he left off. And we also have some big changes for how the Linux kernel is gonna work, as the long-term support versions will no longer be supported for a very long term. Uh, if you don't know, the Linux kernel basically has two branches. The first one is the main one, the current version is 6.5, and it basically gets support until another version comes out and a, a few weeks after that. And you also have the LTS branch, which is supported for six years. Well, it was supported for six years. Now they will move to two years instead. They announced the change at the Open Source Summit. And the rationale behind the change is that basically no one uses very old Linux kernel versions anyways. So there's no point wasting effort and time backporting fixes and security patches to these old versions. And this can be very difficult work because as, a, as an aside, the oldest currently supported version of the kernel, the current oldest LTS version, is 4.14, which was released in 2017. And I'm pretty sure virtually no one uses this thing apart from a few servers that might not be supported at all uh, with the new Linux kernel version. It's probably hardware that has been dropped from other kernels and that should probably be replaced at some point anyway. So if no one uses these old versions, using a lot of developer time to port fixes to very different kernels, because the kernel moves fast and some systems have disappeared from 4.14 to the current 6.5, which means that trying to fix some flaws and, and going back to that old code base to fix new vulnerabilities discovered in it is a bit difficult. And this is combined with the fact that apparently kernel developers are burning out on this kind of work. Uh, some kernel developers are employed by specific companies, but a lot of work is done by volunteers. 
and they might not want to spend their free time working on backporting old security fixes to old version of the kernel. Uh, they also expect the addition of Rust in the kernel to bring some new blood and to make sure that a lot of people might be more interested in contributing to Linux. Uh, so this might alleviate the issue a little bit, but still, they want to move to a two-year LTS window. So the currently supported kernel versions will run their course, they will end their support in at most three years, in December 2026. But all the new LTS kernels will now only get a two-year support window. And honestly, it seems pretty fair, because LTS kernels are mostly used on LTS distributions. If you're not using an LTS distro, you're probably on the current release cycle of the kernel. So you're, if you're using, for example, Fedora, the non-LTS Ubuntu, if you're using Arch or Manjaro or Tumbleweed or something that is not LTS, you're probably using the Linux kernel 6.5 and you'll move to 6.6 .6 when it's out. If you're using an LTS, you're probably on 5.15 or 6.1, I think. I think 6.1 is the other LTS version. And those LTS distros have a two-year release cycle. There's a new one every two years. And the older ones that are supported for longer, they still generally get an update to the LTS kernel they use because they want to enable support for newer hardware. So I can't really say that I'm surprised with this change or unhappy about it. If it means kernel developers are less burdened with backporting things and that they can focus on more interesting and more important work, then I am all for it. And of course, it might impact some use cases, some older servers or older versions uh, of older distros, but are there really many big deployments that still rely on 4.14? when new Linux kernel versions generally improve performance and security, I'm not sure. So yeah, two years seems really fair. And now it's time to tell you about our sponsor, which is Thunderbird. Uh, if you know about Thunderbird, you know they've got a big, big release that came out a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now. Uh, it's called Supernova, it's version 115. And if you used Thunderbird in the past, but the interface didn't really work for you, this version will change that guarantee. Like they moved to a new design that looks much better. You can still replicate the old interface if you prefer that, but they now let you change the density of the app. You can move to a card view for email. You've got a more usable sidebar. Most of the dialogues have been redesigned. The contacts viewer as well. It still handles tasks, RSS, email. You can put the preview pane for email anywhere you want. You can customize the header bar of the app to put any button you want. You can display a menu bar or not. It's really, really powerful. And the latest version is available on FlatHub or from their website. It's also available for Windows and macOS if you want. They're also working on an Android client, which should release not too far in the future and will at some point sync all your settings, extensions and everything uh, from Thunderbird to Thunderbird for Android. It's really, really nice. It's the one that I now use. I replaced Geary and Gnome Calendar with Thunderbird. I haven't looked back even once. So if you gave a shot to Thunderbird in the past, but it didn't quite work for you, do give a try to the new version. It's really, really good. And so thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now, of course, this week we also got the release of GNOME 45, and it brings a lot of changes. I covered all of them in a dedicated video on my YouTube channel. If you don't know, my main job is not making this podcast, it's making 
three YouTube videos per week about Linux and open source. I left a link to the video I made in the show notes uh, so you can watch that and check out all the changes. If you want a small recap, then here it is. Uh, first, we've got a new activities button. Uh, instead of having the activities text in the top bar, we now have something more akin to a workspace indicator. It shows you your current virtual desktop, the other virtual desktop that you have. If you scroll over this, you're gonna move to the next or the previous virtual desktop. And if you click it, it does the same thing as it did before it opens the activities view. Uh, it also means that we lost the application name menu in the top bar, which means that it's now a bit harder to know which app is currently in focus. I personally never needed that, but some people do. So that's that could be considered a regression for some use cases. There's also changes to the quick settings. First, there's a new quick setting toggle for a keyboard backlight. You can turn it on and off through there if your laptop uh, or your keyboard doesn't have native buttons for this. Uh, and you can also configure the uh, the intensity of the light straight from there. And in the, in the quick settings, you also get changes to the background apps. Uh, something that I'm pretty sure was not in GNOME 44 is when you click one of these background apps, it's gonna open a window of this app, which is cool. But also when you click the little X next to the name, it's gonna close the app, but it's gonna tell you that it's closing the app with a little spinner uh, before it felt like it didn't do anything. But then at some point the app would just vanish from the list. And now it's, it's smoother, it's a bit better. Uh, GNOME 45 also has a revamped cursor theme, which is, it's a minor change. Like the mouse pointer has a shorter, a longer stem and most of the other variants of the pointer, like when you're hovering over a link or when you're moving stuff, it's been revamped a little bit, but it's not a huge departure. And there's also a new look for Libadvita apps that use uh, two panels. Before the header bar of the app, the giant uh, top bar that serves as the toolbar and also the, the title bar, uh, was uh, the entire width of the window. Now it's gonna be split if you have multiple panels and it's gonna host different elements. It looks better, it's a regression in Nautilus because you're losing some space for the path bar. It's now aligned to the left of the content panel instead of being aligned to the left of the app, but it still looks good and on most apps it's not a problem and in Nautilus you can just enlarge the window just a little bit to get to the same size of the path bar. It's not a big problem. Uh, there are also some improvements to most of the default apps. There are improvements to the compositor and Wayland support, uh, notably Mutter, the compositor, will now handle the mouse cursor in its own thread. So latency will be reduced when you're moving around, especially for gaming, and also performance should be better in all use cases. Gnome 45 also replaces the older Eye of Gnome app with Loop, which is a new app. It's got the same feature set, but it supports a touchpad and touchscreen gestures in a one-to-one -one fashion. So you can smoothly zoom in and out of pictures, use two finger swipes to move to the next image or the previous image. It's really, really nice. There's a new camera app that does the same thing as cheese without the filters. Uh, there, the calendar gained infinite scroll in the month view and got some redesign using uh, some libadvita components. If you're one of the only persons to use GNOME Web, you'll be happy to know that there's a tab overview grid now, which you can click and it displays all your tabs in a sort of expose view. You get a new experimental light theme for GNOME that you can turn on in dconf, which makes the whole shell light themed, uh, when before all only the apps would be light themed, but the shell would be dark still. You've got improvements to GNOME software, which better handles Flatpak uninstalls. It now lets you say if you want to remove all the data from an application as well. And it's gonna warn you 
of outdated apps before you install them from their app page or in your installed apps list. If an app doesn't receive updates anymore, it's going to tell you that it's unmaintained. And in the settings, because you can't have an update to a desktop environment without having an update to the settings as well, you'll get a new privacy hub, which is a redesign of, well, the privacy hub. You get all the usual options uh, related to privacy and the various hardware of your device. You get better Wi-Fi settings to forget a Wi-Fi network if you want. You get a brand new about page with more information about your hardware. You can copy that information with a single button press. Uh, and you also can close all the pop-ups from a GNOME settings by just pressing escape, which should speed up navigation as well. Now on the less nice side of things, GNOME 45 breaks all extensions. They move to a new spec for JavaScript, which is the language GNOME Shell is written on, and all extensions have to rewrite the way they're imported and they're importing modules into GNOME Shell, so they're all broken. A lot of them have already been ported and already support GNOME 45, but of course not all of them, so some extensions you depend on might not work just yet. Still, it's a very, very solid release. Uh, I think all GNOME users should be interested in it. Uh, if you didn't like GNOME before, you're probably still not gonna like it. If you liked GNOME before, there's only mostly good changes that shouldn't uh, be a problem for you, provided that all the extensions you use uh, were also ported to support it. So as I said, I have a dedicated video about all of this. I left a link to it in the show notes. Now we also have the usual GNOME-related changes uh, with the apps and everything. And this week, the major change is the release of Newsflash 3.0. Uh, Newsflash is an RSS feed reader. It's the best one I found on Linux and on GNOME, uh, but on Linux in general. It's written using libadvita and the new release has a complete redesign and it supports drag and drop to move feeds into categories. It now has a better mobile experience and it should also be way faster to load articles, to sync your feeds, to mark stuff as read and everything. It should be way more responsive. It will also remember the current window state. It can open images from various articles in a big window and it better handles article thumbnails. So each thumbnail for each article will have a nice little hero image uh, next to it, which looks really good. And if you're wondering why you should care about RSS, it's still the best way to get just the news you want to read without any algorithmic BS. And since you can add podcasts and YouTube channels and virtually any website, even though they don't have an RSS feed, because most RSS readers, when you copy paste a website URL, will automatically try and find the RSS feed or build one for you. So it still works with most websites, and yeah, it means that you get to decide what you want to watch, read, or listen to instead of having various algorithms recommend stuff to you. So you can still use algorithmic platforms to discover new stuff, but then you can import that into your RSS feed list and just read everything there instead of depending on what the algorithm decided you might like today. And if you want to do that, you should definitely give Newsflash a try and build your own RSS feed. It's a really, really good application. Uh, now, in other GNOME apps, there's an update to Railway, which is a GNOME app that lets you plan your travels using public transportation. There's Jogger, which is a fitness tracker for GNOME Mobile. There's a massive update to Workbench, which is a must-have app if you want to learn to develop GNOME applications. There's a new update to Turtle, which is a Git repo manager that plugs into Nautilus. There's a new version of Letterpress, which is the app that lets you create ASCII art, and a lot more. 
And the GNOME ecosystem is still really, really vibrant and it moves fast. There's a lot of new stuff. And that's something that I'm really missing now that I moved to KDE for my new setup. There's a video coming about that. KDE apps are cool, but there's a lot less of them than there are GNOME apps. And they don't move as fast and they don't fill the same niches. Of course you can use GNOME apps on KDE, but they don't look really all that good. Uh, because they don't really adapt well to your look. And you can tell that they're GNOME apps, they're not KDE apps. And yeah, the KDE app ecosystem is really lagging behind uh, the GNOME app ecosystem. That's something I'm noticing a lot more nowadays, and it kind of sucks. Now, Ubuntu 23.10 is set to release in a few weeks. I think it's on October 12th, and uh, the beta just dropped this week. And it brings GNOME 45, of course, with all the new stuff I mentioned previously, except a few of the default apps because Ubuntu doesn't ship the entirety of GNOME and they apply their own configurations and stuff like that. Uh, but there are some Ubuntu-specific changes as well this time. Uh, first, it will default to the minimal install option now. Uh, Ubuntu always had like this minimal install option in their installer, but the default was the standard install, which packed in like LibreOffice, GIMP, Shotwell, and a bunch of other programs. Now they're gonna move to this minimal install by default, and the initial plan was to offer a selector for various apps that you wanted or did not want to install, which was a good plan if everyone got to see this screen. But they decided not to do it, but they still kept the minimal install by default. Now, it does come with Firefox, a terminal, a text editor, and the App Store, but that's about it. So you're getting a very bare-bones experience. It might be what you're looking for, but I think for a lot of people it's it's not great. You can still get the usual full roster of apps by selecting the expanded installation instead. And of course, if you upgrade from an earlier version, the apps that you already have installed will be kept. You will not be moved to a minimal install. Uh, I think they should have held off on this until they had like the app selector, which lets you select the various apps that you actually want to download and install. But yeah, not, not a big deal. They also bring their new app store called App Center, uh, I reported previously that at the time it still did not support installing apps packaged as Debian packages from the repos. It looks like this has been fixed uh, from the latest uh, OMG Ubuntu article talking about this beta. They're saying that uh, Deb support is in. Uh, I will, of course, check on that uh, when I make my dedicated video about Ubuntu 23.10. Uh, but it's good that they added back in uh, this support because snaps only, not great for a lot of people. They also have a new firmware updating tool written using Flutter, just like their installer and uh, their new app store. And they use the Linux kernel 6.5, the latest drivers and everything. And finally, they are also bringing experimental full disk encryption using the TPM chip of your computer. Most relatively recent computers do have a TPM chip. And the advantage over the previous encryption method is that you don't have to remember the passphrase that you have to type at each boot, it's stored in the TPM chip instead. It's a bit more secure this way and that's one less password to remember, but this is still experimental. It won't be the default encryption method because it doesn't work if you dual boot, it doesn't work if you use the proprietary NVIDIA drivers, and there are a bunch of use cases that are not supported yet, so it's still very experimental. Still, Ubuntu 23.10, it's called, I think, Mentic Minotaur, it looks like a solid, non-controversial release. Uh, it finally ditched uh, their weird 
terrible fork of GNOME software, which was worse in every possible way compared to regular GNOME software. They moved to a, like, decent-looking app store. I'll have to try it out uh, in more details to see how good it is. And I think most Ubuntu users uh, that like Ubuntu now will be happy to upgrade to this one. And I'm really glad that the App Store supports dev packages again, because, like, snaps, you like them or you don't, but the, one can't argue with the fact that it doesn't have the same variety of software that the Ubuntu repos have. So, like, cutting yourself off artificially from all of these apps is kind of bad. Now, in other distro-related news, uh, Fedora 39 also got their beta, and the changes on the surface are very similar to the one Ubuntu brings. Uh, they use the latest Linux kernel available, the latest drivers available, they use GNOME 45, although it's in a way more vanilla configuration than Ubuntu with all the default apps. Uh, and they also ship with the latest version of Firefox and LibreOffice. And all their official spins are now also available with the latest versions of their respective desktops. So you're getting uh, KDE 5.27.8, you're getting XFC 4.18, Budgie 10.8, Cinnamon 5.8, and LXQ 1.3. The big changes planned for Fedora-specific software won't happen this time around. Uh, they wanted to move to DNF 5, which is a big speed improvement over the current version of DNF in Fedora but they won't be doing that apparently because it's still not ready, still a bit buggy, and they're also not moving to their new uh, replacement installer. If you don't know, Anaconda, which is the Fedora installer, is one of the worst in terms of UX. If you know it, if you already used it, it's fine. If it's the first time you're using it, you're probably never going to manage to figure it out unless you spend a lot of time on it looking for where the buttons are. It's bad. And so they're planning a replacement for that, but it's not ready yet, so... It might happen in Fedora 40 instead of 39. And speaking of Fedora 40, they're planning a change that might be pretty controversial. Uh, we talked about uh, the Fedora KDE spin wanting to uh, get rid of X11 entirely. They want to move to Plasma 6 and to Wayland entirely and not ship X11 at all. It's a proposal, it hasn't been accepted yet, but it might be. Well, it looks like the regular version of Fedora 40, the workstation GNOME edition of Fedora, also wants to do the same thing. They want to ship Wayland by default and compile the GNOME compositor, Mutter, without X11 support entirely, because, well, since Fedora is basically Red Hat but upstream, uh, they Red Hat already deprecated X11, and it would make sense to get rid of it. It's unmaintained and supporting it is just extra work that's not really all that in line with the goals of Fedora. And Wayland has been the default on Fedora for a long while now. It's also the default for NVIDIA drivers these days. And X11 is completely unsupported these days. So they're considering dropping. It's a proposal just like for the KDE spin of Fedora. It hasn't been accepted yet. It still has to be approved by the steering committee, but yeah, it might very well happen. It's the kind of changes that Fedora usually does, so yeah, might happen. And it would actually be very interesting to have one of the major desktop distros completely get rid of X11, if only because it would also help support, well, surface, not support, surface some issues with Wayland. If everyone is forced to use Wayland, then you're gonna see issues. And if you still have X11 as a backup, when someone says, hey, this workflow is completely broken on Wayland, no one had really noticed it before, but now we noticed it. 
if you had Waylon, if you had X11 as a backup, you could say, well, okay, we're noting this, we'll work on it when we have time. Uh, for now, just use X11 instead. But if you don't have X11, then you kind of have to fix the problem, uh, which means that Wayland development could be way faster. It would also mean that some X Wayland problems would be fixed faster. Maybe some apps would be moved from X Wayland to Wayland uh, as well. It's just an interesting move, and Fedora is the right distro to do this kind of move because they've always done that. They move to the latest thing and they shut the door for older, unsupported, or unmaintained stuff. So. Yeah, it's gonna be exciting. I hope the proposals are accepted because, yeah, it would probably kickstart uh, the Wayland transition for a lot of other distros as well. And speaking of Wayland, if you want to learn more about why it's there, why we can't stick to X11, the problems with Wayland, and why it's generally being adopted by everyone, uh, Nate Graham has a blog post about this. If you don't know, Nate Graham is the wonderful, super prolific person that writes all these uh, Plasma and KD weekly blog posts uh, that I report on on this podcast very often. And he published a post about Wayland, how it's coming along and why it's needed. And he starts off by saying that we do need Wayland because X11 is dead. It's in maintenance mode. It sees no real development. The only thing that's happening on X11 is X Wayland stuff, which is basically just running X11 inside of Wayland for apps that don't support Wayland just yet. And it's obviously not a great situation to be in when you're a core part of the desktop experience. Because X11 and Wayland, they're the things that let you display windows, panels, buttons on screen. If you don't have them, then you don't have a graphical desktop on Linux. And so being stuck on X11 when it's completely unsupported and won't evolve past its current state is a very bad situation. So there's no two ways about it. X11 is abandoned and we need a replacement. And that replacement, everybody agrees on, is Wayland. And now why did X11 die is an interesting thing. It's basically because it was adopted by everyone and it became too large and too complicated. It was developed a very long time ago and it did not support, well, it wasn't developed with all the new use cases in mind, uh, like high DPI, multiple monitors with different refresh rates, HDR, stuff like that. It was never developed with these in mind. And while technically it should be possible to evolve it to support all of this, it would incur giant refactoring of the code. And you can't refactor a project that is used by everyone because you're gonna break stuff for everyone. So basically no one really wanted to risk digging into the old spaghetti code of X11 and trying to bring that support in, which means that it never really evolved to support all of these features. Now that's not to say that Wayland is perfect. Uh, Nate Graham points out a bunch of issues with Wayland, notably the big one, which is on how Wayland was architectured which is you don't have a central Wayland component that implements a lot of the base protocols. A lot of these have to be implemented by the compositor, the window manager itself, which means that each desktop and window manager has to duplicate a lot of the work. This is slowly being solved. There is a Wayland-based library that implements a bunch of stuff, but the window manager has to do a lot more than in X11. It's a lot more work to write a Wayland compositor than it was to write an X11 window manager. Now, 
there are a bunch of reference implementations that you can base your work off. Uh, that's what, uh, for example, Budgie will do. They're going to use WL roots. I think that's the same for, for XFC. They're going to use the same base to write their own compositor, which already supports a bunch of the protocols they need. But it's still a lot more work. And so we arrive at today, where Wayland is being pushed onto everyone and quickly adopted by virtually every desktop and every distro. I think the only desktops that didn't really communicate on their move to Wayland are Cinnamon and Mate. Everything else is already full-on supporting Wayland perfectly, or will be, like for example Plasma 6. Gnome, I would say, is already like the most advanced in terms of stability and Wayland support. Plasma, not far behind. Uh, XFC already has a roadmap for it. Even Elementary OS has an experimental session you can try with Wayland. So everyone is moving to it. And X11 is being phased out, for example, in Fedora 40 with the recent proposals I just talked about. But the issue is, since this transition has been in the works for a long time now, a lot of app developers sort of thought it would never really happen. And so they haven't really been working on porting their apps uh, to support Wayland which is why there's a lot of work of catching up right now, happening right now, because they're saying like, oh crap, this is actually happening now. Uh, yeah, we need to do the work now. Uh, because a lot of apps still rely on X Wayland, which is running X11 inside of Wayland. And this comes with its own set of problems because, well, you're still running the old, unmaintained, unsupported thing inside of the new one. So it's not a, a long-term solution. Now, Nate concludes by saying not to worry. If you use X11 and you depend on X11 for some use cases that Wayland does not support, you have a lot of time before you're forced to use Wayland. Uh, just because something like Fedora, which is very leading edge, uh, wants to move to Wayland entirely and ditch X11 doesn't mean that every single distro will do so. Uh, you still have a lot of time to get used to it, for your apps to be ported, and by the time uh, all distros in the world have ditched X11, Wayland will probably support all the use cases that it doesn't right now. But like he says, this transition is happening. There is no way it stops. There's no way we're going back to X11 and we're dropping Wayland. And there's no way anyone forks X11 or, or keeps it updated to support the new stuff that we need on our current hardware. Wayland is the future for Linux desktops. There's no arguing with that. If you don't think so, you are delusional. It is even the present, because if, like me, you've been using it for two or three years, it doesn't feel like the future. It's, it's currently working right now for a lot of people. But it also doesn't mean that you'll have to move to it next year if you don't want it right now or if it doesn't support everything that you need right now. Now, we're going to talk about something some of you might not think belong in this, which is WSL, the Windows subsystem for Linux. Microsoft just released a big update for this subsystem and I think it still it's still worthy of being covered here because it's basically using Linux but on another operating system it's basically like a VM and the new update brings a bunch of features for people who want and need the power of Linux but can't or don't want to use Linux on bare metal uh, first WSL will now support automatic shrinking of the Linux VM's uh, RAM usage and hard drive so it should be able to use less resources and less disk space. They're also bringing mirrored networking and improvements to how DNS requests are resolved, which should resolve in more robust networking access uh, from your Linux VM in WSL. 
and it will now support Windows firewall rules uh, inside the Linux VM and it will automatically pick up on the proxy settings that are set in Windows, which is probably a very important thing for a lot of companies because a lot of companies do use a proxy uh, to, to, get, uh, to, to let your, their employees access the internet. Now, all of these are experimental. They need to be enabled in the .wsl config file uh, in your home directory on, uh, on Windows, uh, but they're still here, which is nice. And on top of that, they also upgraded uh, the Linux kernel that they ship by default, which is 5.15. They improved graphics and GUI support, since if you don't know, WSL lets you run graphical Linux apps inside of Windows, as well as command line programs. And some of you might think that it's not deserving of a mention, that it's some kind of Trojan horse to, to like delete Linux as an independent OS and only make it a part of, of Windows. But let's be honest, it's a way to run Linux, even if you're stuck on or if you prefer using Windows and you're still a Linux user. You're, you're doing your work using Linux. It's not like Microsoft can say, hey, uh, we're removing WSL so everyone uses Windows because, well, you're using Linux. Windows does not work in the same way. They can't really delete Linux. You're still going, even if everyone only used Linux through WSL, you're still using Linux. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's nice to see the experience get better here as well. And we also have some worrying news about malware because apparently hackers have been using a new way to implement a Linux backdoor and researchers just discovered it. And the reason they just discovered it, even though it's been in use for about six years apparently, is that it's pretty hard to detect because in most cases you can't see the malware on your hard drive. It runs and executes only in memory. And of course, as with most bad things uh, coming on in the computing world, this malware originates from Windows, but has been now ported to Linux as well. And what this thing does is it implements a backdoor into your Linux system, it collects system information, and it opens a remote shell, so the attacker can control your system, they can upload and download files, they can list your files in various directories to know what you have installed, and they can delete and rename files. Basically, they have full system access. And it looks like it's under active development still, because researchers found multiple version numbers of the same malware out and about. So just a fair warning, make sure that you have all your updates applied to your Linux kernel, to your drivers, to the various systems that you use. Make sure that you uninstall the libraries and packages that you don't need so you don't add unnecessary vulnerabilities. And make sure that you avoid installing stuff from weird curl download scripts or weird PPAs, repos or executables that you don't really know the exact source or maintainer. That's always a good practice to stay as safe as possible. And as always, we're going to finish this with the gaming news. Uh, first, we got a nice recap about how Valve is a bigger contributor to Linux than even I thought. Uh, we all know that they're basically single-handedly moving the Linux gaming scene forward and enabling it. They're basing a lot of their work on pre-existing work and community work. But the fact that they're implementing uh, Wine, DXVK and all that stuff natively into Steam is a huge help. But they're actually contributing to a lot more stuff. Uh, through SteamOS, uh, they found some Linux kernel work, like the Futex API. Uh, they help solve context-insensitive support for X4 to better support Windows compatibility. They contributed to various drivers, notably for AMD, since the Steam Deck runs on AMD APU, to the ACO compiler to get uh, shaders compiled faster, or even to Vulkan to better support video playback on Linux. 
but they also have the currently ongoing work to support HDR on Linux. They, they are supporting the work to better handle GPU resets. They support Flatpak through SteamOS. They developed their entire GameScope compositor, which is really powerful and really cool, and a lot more. And of course, most of this work is related to stuff that helps Valve sell more Steam decks and get away from Windows, because, well, Windows is definitely a competitor for Valve, and they can't really sell devices with Windows pre-installed that would eat into their margins. So they're doing this for their own benefit. But the fact that they're doing this with open source also means that everyone else benefits. And that's how interactions with the community and companies are supposed to work in the open source world. The company sees the benefit of using Linux for their distro or, or various open source projects to enable Linux gaming, but then they contribute back and everyone else benefits from that. Uh, it's really cool. And I think it's a great example of a capitalist company interacting nicely with the open source community. It's, it's a good model to follow for other companies, basically. And we also have some updates for the Wayland driver for Wine, with a new set of patches posted for review. This time, uh, the patch set enables window management, uh, which is something that I thought was already there, but apparently not. Uh, this includes resizing windows, moving them around, using the right cursors when you're hovering inside the window, closing the window through the compositor, for example, by clicking the little cross, the little X button, uh, and other basic window management things. It might look like really simple, uninteresting stuff, but it's actually really needed. Uh, it's not just displaying fancy graphics and using your GPU through Vulkan and whatever. You also do need to have interactivity with minimizing a window, resizing it, and actually resizing the content of the window inside, maximizing, closing, stuff like that. You need to support all of this, and it doesn't come for free. You have to implement it. So at some point, it was needed to do it, and now this patch set does just that. It's not just fancy hardware acceleration for gaming. It's also the basics. And so this will conclude this podcast. Uh, as always, all the links that I use to make this show are in the show notes. You can click on them if you want more details about any of these articles and any of these snippets. If you want to check our sponsor, Thunderbird, I also left a link in the show notes. And if you want to support the show yourself, there are also plenty of links in the show notes. So thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!